Father God, would you please speak to us now through your word. Would you touch our minds and touch our hearts and would you set us on fire with love for you. Amen. Um, when I was at university, I had a friend, um, uh, she was a Catholic sister, a Catholic nun, and she was studying, and she told of the time when she was serving uh, in a home for retired priests, and she said on one occasion she had to take dinner to uh, one of these priests, or the priests as they were sitting around the table, and she took in, I can't remember what, she took in the meat, she took in, and then separately she took in the potatoes, and then she took in the peas or the vegetables. And one cantankerous old priest said to her, he said, sister, he said, sister, I like my meal in peace, not in pieces. Well, we're uh, talking today about um, how Jesus gives peace to people who are afraid. Peace, P-E-A-C-E. The disciples are in a house with doors that are locked because they're afraid of the authorities. That is what fear does. It, it locks us in. We are so often paralysed by fear, by fear of other people, by fear of being shamed, by fear of failure, by fear of condemnation by fear of losing something or someone that has become so precious to us that it is part of us, by fear of being hurt or pain, by fear of death. It is because of the fear of being rejected that we do not, do, that we do not invite, for instance, someone out for even uh, as something as simple as a coffee or a drink because we're afraid maybe of, of rejection. It is because of the fear of humiliation that we're not prepared to share our weaknesses uh, and vulnerabilities. Um, I have to say um, last night I went to Christ the Saviour um, and um, for the Easter service and um, as is the case, I was right at the front and all the lights were there, all the cameras were there, everything was there, the president was there. And then suddenly I started to feel really, really faint. I was fortunately not quite in the front row, I was in the second row, so I was standing. So I sort of hid behind one person and I thought, this is no good, I am going to go. I am just going to go straight over. So I, uh, but it was interesting how the complete fear, wasn't so much the fear of fainting, it was the fear of being shamed, of walking out, having, having to walk out. And yet actually, of course, uh, people are quite used to that sort of thing happening. So no doubt if people go around and say, well, these feeble Anglicans, they really cope with, can't cope with anything, you will now know why. <laughs> um, perhaps more seriously, though, it's the fear of the consequences that we do not do what is right. Um, many years ago, um, I was going into one of the churches where I served, 
And, and as I say this, I, I am still filled with shame about this. Um, I noticed that two men went up to an older drunk man who was sitting on a park bench. Our church was situated in a park where we had quite a number of older drunk men, men who would come and have and basically get drunk. Anyway, these two young men went up to him and they attacked him. It was completely unprovoked. They started beating him, kicking and hitting him. And I, I did nothing. I thought if I step in, they will attack me. As I say, even as I say this, I feel ashamed. And perhaps I feel even more ashamed because I'm not sure whether if it happened today, I would do anything different. I hope I would. Fear traps and paralyzes us. It locks us into ourselves. And the disciples are in a locked room, fearful of being arrested, fearful of facing up to their failures. The fact that they've abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. Fearful of being shamed in front of their families and communities as they return like dogs with their tails between their legs because the man they've committed their life to for the last three years has ended up crucified on a cross. Uh, and look at Thomas. Fear has also locked him in. He would not believe. He says, I will not believe. Even though all the people he had lived with for the last three years, who he had trusted and depended on, were telling him that they had seen the risen Jesus. He says, I will not believe unless I see the scars and put my fingers in them. Why? Well, I guess it was the fear of being made to look foolish, or perhaps the fear simply of being let down again. But Jesus breaks into that locked room, not once, but twice, and his first words on both occasions are, Peace be with you. In fact, on the first occasion, he says, peace be with you twice. And Jesus breaks into our locked rooms and he brings us peace. First of all, he gives to people who are afraid evidence that he has risen from the dead. Look at how John has written this chapter. Do look at the, the pink notice sheet now because this next bit is really fascinating. Uh, and as I go through the passage, you might just see one or two things. In verse 1, notice the use of the word see. In verse 1, Mary sees the stone has been moved from the tomb. In verse 6, Peter sees the discarded strips of linen that had been used as grave clothes. In verse 8, neither of them believe, but in verse 8 we're told that John sees and believes. Then, in verse 13, Mary sees the risen Jesus. And in verse 18, she says to the disciples, 
I have seen the Lord. In verse 20, the disciples see the Lord. And in verse 25, they say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, verse 25, unless I see, I will not believe. And when he does see Jesus, Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's an absolutely fascinating structure and it is very, very deliberate. In other words, we are blessed. We are blessed, you and me, when we believe that Jesus has risen from the tomb. Not because we have seen the empty tomb or the rolled away stone or the discarded strips of linen, not because we have encountered and seen the risen Jesus. Some of us here may have had experiences uh, uh, or encounters with the risen Jesus, but many of us will not have. But because we are blessed, we are blessed because we have believed and trusted those who did see him. We have, by the grace of God, believed the scriptures. Look again at verse 9. Verse 9 says, uh, that's, uh, uh, Oh, sorry, you can't see verse 9, it's a bit too early. But verse 9 says they had not believed the resurrection. because They did not believe in the resurrection because they had not believed the scriptures which spoke about that. Uh, and that implies that if those first disciples had understood their Old Testament, they would have realised that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's the Old Testament which tells us that the Messiah will suffer and be raised. It's the Old Testament with all its predictions, including the fact that the Messiah would be laid in the tomb of a rich man. All these things were fulfilled. But we not only have the Old Testament, we also have the New Testament, which tells us of the witness of those first disciples, of Mary and the disciples, and then Thomas. So we have the evidence. It is not in what we see or experience, but in what they saw and experienced. It is the witness of what they have written down for us, for that matter, for what they were prepared to give their lives for. You, you, you may give your life for a cause, a good cause, a bad cause, but very, very rarely does a person give their life for a fact that they know is not true. And yet these first disciples, virtually all of them, gave their lives because they claimed that God had raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that they had seen him. And we have the evidence from the witness of the traditions that have been handed down from one generation to the next. 
And this is a truth which will change our lives. It can set us free from fear. A German theologian, a man called Wolfhart Pannenberg, says, said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it, except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. I am not saying that if we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we will never fear. Of course we will continue to fear. To fear loneliness, hurt and pain. To fear the process of, of death. To fear abandonment. To fear all those things. But our peace in our fear lies in this. We have a hope. Hatred and death is not the end. Love and life do win. It really will be happily ever after in the end. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And then secondly, Jesus breaks into the locked rooms of our fear and gives us peace by reassuring us of his forgiveness and of his calling. It must have been a pretty sorry sight that first Sunday evening of the day of the resurrection. A group of men who had come together because there was nowhere else for them to go. They were afraid of the authorities. And they were ashamed. They had let Jesus down. They had denied him and abandoned him. Maybe someone had prepared some food, but I guess few of them ate anything. It was a rather uncomfortable wake. Nobody could look anybody else in the face. And suddenly Jesus appears and says, Peace be with you. And as they get over their shock and their joy at what they saw, I guess they began to wonder, now what? What will he say to us? Will he say, I trusted you and you let me down and now I really need to start again? There's a storyline in The Archers. Um, it's a radio soap opera which some of you um, from some of you will, will, will know of, some of you, the very sad people among you will know of, <laughs> in which a um, lady who is a volunteer minister in the church has stopped coming to church. She has divorced her husband and she feels so guilty that she can't face coming to church. Well, this next bit is for her and for the disciples, and for anyone who knows that we have let Jesus down. Jesus says to them a second time, peace be with you. He doesn't say, what a bunch of losers, what a waste of space. He doesn't condemn them. Instead, he simply says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He gives them a task. Continue to do what I have done with my authority in my strength and in my name. And the main thing that he focuses on is that they are to forgive sins. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Is this about preaching? We forgive sins by preaching the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. If people hear and put their trust in him, then they are forgiven. If people refuse to hear, then they remain condemned. Or is this about the church in the person of an authorised individual, connected relationally with the men and women of God of the past through a common faith, and some would say, by the laying on of hands, declaring absolution for sins, that your sins are forgiven, whether publicly in something like, you know, we have in our absolution after the general confession, when we hear that our sins are forgiven, or in private confession. And if that is the case, then the church, in the person of those people, must, can, declare to anyone who has received Jesus that their sins are forgiven. And the church also has the authority to say to those who persistently refuse to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, who persistently refuse to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, that their sins are not forgiven. I don't know. Could be both. But what I do know is that when the risen Jesus meets with the disciples who have badly let him down, and he says, peace with you, and he gives them a job to do, the first thing he does is he talks, he emphasises the fact of the forgiveness of sins. That is what he came to do, to bring forgiveness of sins. It is for them, and through them, it is for all people. In other words, Jesus breaks into the locked room of our fear that we are nothing, that we are failures because we have sinned and that we, because we have let him down. And he reassures us of the forgiveness of sins and he reassures us of his call. And thirdly, Jesus breaks into the locked room of our fear and he gives us peace because he gives us himself. This, I have to say, is probably, well, how can I say this, but the most precious of the three things that Jesus does for those who follow him. Yes, we believe and trust he rose from the dead, that death is defeated, but we still have to live in this world with all its hurts and its pains and its agonies and frustrations. Last week we heard of people who lost entire families in the massacres in Sri Lanka. You're married with one, with two children. You receive a phone call and in a few seconds you realise you're on your own. And yes, we have the promise that our sins have been forgiven and we have a task to do, to do what he did in his authority, to live for him. Oh, but that is so hard, to follow him, to follow him to the cross. But now, as Jesus says, peace be with you, he breathes on them and gives them his Holy Spirit. 
I know the Holy Spirit doesn't fully come till the first Pentecost, 50 days later. But Jesus gives them a sign, a glimpse of what is to come. And the Spirit is the Spirit of the risen Jesus. He gives us himself. There is no room that is so locked that the Spirit of Jesus cannot get in. He can even come into the deepest, darkest pit of someone who has no hope, who is locked in depression. He comes to us and he says to us, peace be with you. And if we're prepared to welcome and receive him, his Holy Spirit, his presence will come and live in us. He will be with us and he will be in us. He will guide us and teach us. He will change our hearts and our desires. And he will, it may not be immediate, it takes time. He will not only reassure us that he is alive, he will not only tell us that we are okay, that we're forgiven, that we are right with God because of his, the death, but he will begin to give us the knowledge. He will begin to give us that inner knowledge of that peace which really does pass all understanding. May the peace of God rest with you and rest with me. Amen.